Truth Espresso, episode 208. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso. Welcome to this episode of Truth Espresso Express. As I am recording this, I am driving to work, getting out of my parking lot here from my house to another day at the grind doing software development. And I am going to continue my series answering the question, was Jesus a socialist? Now, I've already done three parts in this series, and so I would highly recommend that if you haven't listened to them, to listen to parts one, two, and three so that you get a full picture, all the arguments. So we talked about how Jesus was not trying to overthrow structures and set up a socialist order interconnected with the political control of the time. He wasn't trying to overthrow Caesar during his earthly ministry. He wasn't trying to start a revolt or a revolution, even if some of his followers thought that he might or wished that he might, but not necessarily to set up socialism either. They wanted to reinstate the kingdom of Israel as the top kingdom of the world. And we looked at some parables that clearly did not teach socialism, even if some socialists, without reading the details closely, without uh, paying attention to the lesson there, the true lesson, and all the details, thought that a parable would teach socialism, but we'd see that it was more in line with, you know, the idea of a free market rewarding frugality and investment and so on. Because Jesus taught parables about the kingdom of heaven and he was giving his disciples lessons on their duty of making more citizens of the kingdom, investing their lives into the kingdom. And if Jesus were socialist, why would he use examples of kings and servants and uh, business investment and so on? Now, I'm not standing here, or sit, rather sitting here, before you in the car driving to work to say that I advocate for kings and servants as they existed at this time. But the idea of saving up investing, being frugal enterprise is something that has always existed in as much as it has been allowed in any society throughout all of history. So that's one of those enduring economic freedom principles that I believe is perfectly biblical. So now in this episode, I want to get into some of Jesus' teachings that socialists will use or they will quote from to show that Jesus supports socialism. Because without any context, without any precursor reading or seeing what the lesson is that Jesus is teaching or how to compare the example here with everything else that Jesus taught, you know, you could derive the idea that Jesus is teaching socialism. Also, if you have an incomplete idea of socialism and you divorce it from the idea that it's centrally planned. So, I want to answer the question in this episode, 
is wealth the problem or is the love of it the problem? Because socialists often cannot distinguish the two. They think that if there's wealth, then that by definition is the love of it. But you see in the Bible examples of people who are caught up in the love of wealth and people who use it for good causes. You see in the Psalms and the Proverbs, which I want to get into later, lessons warning about the deceit of riches and how they can ensnare people, and you have the promises of blessing righteous people with wealth. And you have Proverbs talking about the idea of a righteous person is able to acquire wealth and give an inheritance to his children. So let's get into answering this question with an example that I've seen socialists bring up. And that is the story, the account of the rich young ruler. So if you're not familiar with the story of the rich young ruler, here it is. So a young man, some gospel accounts will just say one came up to him running, or, you know, say a, a young ruler came up to him. And we find out that he's rich because of the end of it. So we call him the rich young ruler. So this rich young ruler runs eagerly up to Jesus and says to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, I don't want to get into a discourse, everything about that question and what it would entail doctrinally and stuff or responses to it. But so he asked Jesus, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And some key words there, like inheriting eternal life, might go along with how he's used to his lifestyle, too. So Jesus gives him a rundown of the second table of the Law of Moses. He says, you know the commandments. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness or lie. Some gospel accounts say, like, don't defraud. And then he says, honor your father and mother. So it's take care of your parents. And this seems to be big with Jesus because, you know, he was aware of the Corban rule in which people would find an excuse away from taking care of their parents by dedicating their inheritance to the temple, or at least declaring that it was. Who knows if they followed up on it? So Jesus said this, which was honoring your father and mother. That's the commandment before the second table. And the rich young ruler says, all of these things have I done my whole life, basically, from my youth. What do I lack? So the rich young ruler is pretty proud of himself there. He, by all standpoints, in the cultures, living a godly life, and he's wealthy. So he asked Jesus, what do I lack? Now, we could cut him some slack there. He could have just said, well, I've kept everything here, so uh, I'm getting eternal life, right? And then walk away and not actually ask Jesus, is there anything I lack? So he's really wanting to know, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, as the disciples told him. I want to know, am I lacking anything? Please tell me. And then so Jesus tells him, you know, some gospel, well, a gospel account says Jesus beholding him loved him. So Jesus wasn't scolding this man. He sees a man who's desiring to some extent to do the right thing. But Jesus knows the weakness of this man. 
And he tells him, one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And I, I know a gospel account has like, take up your cross. You know, so he's giving that clarion call to be his disciple. That is most evidenced in the call to the disciples who would travel with him on his earthly ministry. Now, this does reflect the call to be a disciple at any time is to be willing to give up everything if necessary. You've committed yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But he's telling this, he's revealing the sticking point with this rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler then walks away from this. So Jesus told him what he lacked, and he walks away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And then Jesus tells the people around him, especially the disciples who were with him, he asks them the rhetorical question, seemingly, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he asks a second time, like brethren or children or, you know, disciples, like, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And then the disciples then ask him, well, then who can be saved? <laughs> and that's an important question there. And then Jesus' reply is also important because he says, with men, this is impossible, but not with God, for with God, all things are possible. And then Peter says, behold, Jesus, we have all left everything to follow you. And then Jesus says, there will be no one who has left houses and family and stuff to follow me who will not be rewarded in this life in some way and in the next, in the, in the kingdom, in eternal life. So a couple of takeaways here. Let's answer the question, was Jesus promoting socialism because he told this rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then be my disciple, then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the, his statement saying, how hard is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Seems like the socialists have bank on this account here. But we need to look closely at the details. We need to be aware of what's going on here in the culture. Because we need to know that Jesus did not tell everyone to sell their possessions and give to the poor to inherit eternal life. That was something he told specifically to this rich young ruler to reveal his sticking point, that he truly wasn't willing to forsake the trust that he had in his own riches to become a disciple of Jesus. He was ensnared by his wealth. As virtuous as he was in every other respect, his riches were keeping him from trusting in Jesus for eternal life. We know this because Jesus acknowledged the faith of other people, even without expecting them to have to give up everything that they had. He marveled to his disciples and he said of the centurion who uh, trusted that Jesus could heal his servant, he told the centurion, go back and your servant will live. And he said that he marveled to his disciples, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Yeah, we, we see that Jesus admonished the faith of both poor and wealthy people as long as their wealth was not holding them back. 
So giving up everything in the way that Jesus said, selling everything, giving to the poor, and having treasure in heaven was not a formula, a universal formula, whereby anyone gets eternal life and that therefore the duty of everything to be a true disciple of Jesus is that they must part with all their possessions and give to the poor. This is not a formula for (laughs) society. It's a formula for this person to reveal his weakness, his own personal trust in wealth. And because Jesus said, he asked the question, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And then his disciples then were aghast and said, well, who then can be saved? Because we must keep in mind that the culture of this time, especially for the faithful Jews at this time, they were under bondage of Rome. And there were those who, you know, the Pharisees who kept the law of God, at least it seemed at least outwardly, as vigorously as you could, and they also, in doing so, seem to be able to acquire to themselves wealth. And so, what became a sign of someone who was righteous at this time, culturally, was if they were wealthy. If you could see that they were wealthy, like this rich young ruler, and like the Pharisees, and they acknowledged and were trying to keep the law of God, those who were striving for righteousness at this time had the idea that, well, if you're trying to be righteous, then God will bless you with wealth despite the circumstances. And so, (laughs) you know, as we see in John chapter 9, where you have the blind man, the disciple said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, it was neither this man or his parents for why he was blind but that God will be glorified. So Jesus, in some of his teachings against wealth, against trusting in wealth, was also to dispel some of the prevailing ideas in the culture this time. Wealth was not a sign that one was being blessed by God for living righteously. Now, we do have promises in the Old Testament toward Israel of God blessing them with wealth if they live righteously. God blessing the nation. But it's not a universal thing. God blessed poor people and didn't make them wealthy for their righteousness. God blessed people with wealth for being righteous, but it was not a sure thing. Now, someone, you know, if they followed the Proverbs, they could build some wealth by being frugal, working hard, taking care of their family, not being frivolous, because there are Proverbs about people coming to poverty by being foolish. So, yes, contrary to the arguments of socialists, we must take into account all of the teachings. We don't take things out of context. There are people who are wealthy, who are wealthy because they were doing the right thing and they're blessed for. There were people who were poor, who were poor because they did the wrong thing and were frivolous with their earnings and foolish with them. There were people who were poor who, because of the circumstances they were in, couldn't help being poor and they tried to live righteous lives. Or they were poor because they were generous with their wealth and God would bless them for that. 
And there are people who are rich because they got it through ill-gotten gain. And that was always a bad thing. So in the culture this time, wealth was a sign of God's blessing if you were a faithful Jew trying to keep the commandments, you know, especially the religious leaders, they were the example. And then those who were wealthy because they were helping out Rome by being a tax collector or a thief, well, for good reasons, they were disdained in Israel. And then Jesus had disciples like Matthew, who was a tax collector. And, you know, obviously Matthew left his profession there to follow Jesus around and be a disciple. And people had problems with that. They would complain to Jesus, say, you're a wine bibber. You hang out with tax collectors and sinners. And they didn't seem willing to forgive someone like Matthew as a tax collector for being a disciple of Jesus. But it's not wealth that's the problem, it's the love of wealth. And all of scripture attests to this. I also want to make a point then, because the disciples asked Jesus, well, if this rich young ruler who's keeping the commandments can't be saved because of his wealth, well, then who could be saved because isn't God blessing him with wealth because of how righteous he is? So that dispels their understanding of wealth being attached to blessings from God if you're not a tax collector or a thief. But notice that Jesus says, with men this is impossible. Wait a minute. With men this is impossible. So Jesus is saying, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven through your own efforts. It's impossible. Especially if, if you're a rich person who falls into the trap of trusting in riches. Once again, it's an example of something. It's impossible. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. So with God, God can redeem people regardless if they're rich or poor. But with men, it is impossible to be saved. It must be something that God works in someone's heart. And then so, let me ask the question again. With Jesus' statement to this rich young ruler, was he in any way advocating, was there any evidence that he was advocating for some kind of government control or so-called public control of the means of production? No, there's no evidence of that. He was revealing to this one person their sticking point, making a lesson against the cultural ideas of the day so he can teach then that God is the one who saves. It's not whether you're rich or poor. It's where your heart is. It's what's keeping you from committing to Jesus. Someone can commit to Jesus and be wealthy if they're not trusting in the riches consumed by their wealth. Someone can commit to Jesus if they're poor. But with men this is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And then now I want to get into some verses from the Old Testament that would give us a context here. Because, as I said, the Bible does not say that wealth itself is the problem. As I said, there's lessons in the Bible, both on wealth being a snare to people who let it consume them, they put their trust in it, and wealth being something that God blesses people with for doing the right thing as long as they don't let it control them. 
And as long as they don't brag or boast about it, because there are righteous, wealthy people in the Bible, and there are rotten, wealthy people in the Bible. There are righteous, poor people in the Bible, and there are rotten, poor people in the Bible. Do you know how to control money, or does money know how to control you? That is the takeaway. Not socialism, not the idea that we have to have a government system that controls the means of production. And now I just parked at work, but I have some verses in my notes that I will then take care of. So what I have to teach the lesson about wealth from the Old Testament that would provide a context for Jesus in Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 through 18, I will put these verses in the show notes, the references, so you can look them up. But God said that he enables Israel to get wealth, but he doesn't want them to think that it's from their own might. So, yeah, there we go. There's a, He's warning against an ensnare of wealth, but he says he's going to bless them with wealth if they keep to the covenant. We also see in Ruth uh, 2.1 that Boaz is mentioned as a mighty man of wealth, and this guy seems to be righteous. He, you know, he owns the fields, and Ruth gleans in them according to the, the, the gleaning laws, and Boaz ends up marrying Ruth. He becomes the kinsman redeemer, and Boaz and Ruth become the ancestors of Jesus himself. There's no knock on Boaz for him being a mighty man of wealth. In fact, it seems to be the redeeming part of the story here. In 2 Chronicles 1.12, God asks King Solomon what he would want for the sake of the kingdom. Solomon asks for wisdom and knowledge, and God says, because you asked for wisdom and knowledge and not for wealth and riches and honor, I will give you wisdom and knowledge and more wealth than anyone else has ever had ever. <laughs> so because Solomon wanted wisdom and knowledge, God sees to bless him with wealth. And so that should tell us something. Wealth is not a bad thing if it's in the hands of righteous people who are not consumed by it. The Psalms and the Proverbs, as I said, both warn against the love of wealth. They also talk about blessing righteousness with wealth, and they say that responsible people can amass wealth to leave as an inheritance for their children. Psalm 49, verse 6 says, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, that's referring to people who are a problem there, there are those that trust in their wealth and boast in their riches. That's a problem. But we also have Psalm 112, verse 3, that says, Wealth and riches shall be in his house, referring to one, the one who fears Yahweh, and his righteousness endureth forever. So we see wealth and riches being a reward for righteousness. Proverbs 13, 11 says, Wealth gotten by vanity, or you could say ill-gotten gain, shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. So there you have the dichotomy of how do you get your wealth and what you do with it, that's the problem, not whether you have wealth. You have someone who gathers by labor shall increase their wealth. 
Proverbs 13.22, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. So you have, okay, here's people who are sinners who get wealth, but ultimately because of their sin, their wealth will end up getting distributed to the righteous people who can leave inheritance to their children's children. And I would like to note in passing that socialists seem to be in favor of forcefully redistributing inheritance. Or they you know, they advocate inheritance tax. They don't like inheritance, accumulating inheritance to children's children. You have Proverbs 13, verse 23, the next verse. Much food is in the tillage of the poor, but there is one that destroyeth for want of judgment. So even the poor can gather food if they're diligently tilling, but those who, do, who lack judgment in the matter, they'd end up destroying wealth. And socialism doesn't provide a distinction, and it, so it doesn't provide a means of avoiding destroying wealth for the poor. Proverbs 19.14, House and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. So here we see accumulating wealth is an inheritance of fathers. If you're a godly father, you will be frugal, and you will provide for your family and even uh, accumulate wealth there. Proverbs 24, verses 3 through 4. Through wisdom is a house builded, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So there you go with blessings of becoming wealthy by knowledge and wisdom. Ecclesiastes 5:19. Solomon said, Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. <laughs> now he talks about other scenarios that are vanity and stuff, but he says it's the gift of God if someone is able to work, amass wealth, partake of it, rejoice in his labor, as long as he's not being a sinner with his wealth. And then finally, Proverbs 3.16. This is talking about wisdom, personifying wisdom. It says, length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand, riches and honor. So yes, it depends on how you amass wealth and how you use it. If you're righteous, if you're wise, if you have knowledge, if you're frugal, you can amass wealth and the scriptures do not demand that you're forcibly parted with it. Now, you know, as I said, there's talk about taking care of the poor. And God blesses that too, but you don't have to take care of the poor by getting rid of all your wealth. Now, Jesus telling the rich young ruler to get rid of all his wealth and come and follow him in his ministry, travel around with him, was a unique thing for this rich young ruler. And it doesn't teach socialism. And so, that ends this episode, and so... I hope that this episode was good and informative, and stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso, and God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.